Everything you're about to hear started one night in midsummer, shortly after I graduated from college. The events are separated in memory, but it was most likely the same evening my girlfriend took a job in New Hampshire. I already knew that I couldn't put my journalism degree to good use in Boston, so I went back to my apartment that night, fully aware that I would soon move back to the Philadelphia suburbs. I like to listen to music when I have a rough day, and my chosen record that night had this one spot on the last track that just cut through me. listened to the album six times that night. Not even really sure where the record came from, like it had just been sitting there on my iPod, waiting for me to find it. It felt so rare and personal, so true to the moment that I was living in, and because I had little else to look forward to, I wanted to figure out where it came from. My name is Brendan Maddox, and you're listening to Stories About Music, a podcast on the subjects of music, journalism, and memoir, and how the line between those three things is often not as clear as I'd hoped. Or my keys are somewhere. This is story about music number four. A story about the trouble books. Why Pearl Harbor? Well, I just thought it was funny at the time, I guess. <laughs> the cat doesn't look amused. No, she never does. <laughs> I'm sitting in Keith Freund's living room, somewhere in Akron's Highland Square neighborhood. It's a beautiful room, a rectangular space with a small greenhouse at one end and a porch at the other, overlooking a wooded backyard. It's August, and the 17-year cicadas are at their peak. The room itself is sparsely decorated with paintings by friends and half-full bookshelves, not in a minimalist way, but suggesting that its new owners are taking their time to fill it. Keith sits on a couch that's covered in patches, quick fixes to the spots that his cats Iffy and Pearl Harbor have torn away. His wife and collaborator Linda Lashavka joins us after putting their nine-month-old daughter down for a nap. Keith and Linda are more publicly known, though not by much as the band Trouble Books. So, um, what's a good place to start? How'd you guys meet? Uh, we met through friends at a uh, house show a few blocks from here. 
And was the attraction immediate? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I was out of my mind at that house job. <laughs> For the better part of the last decade, Linda and Keith have been making some very unique music in the time outside of their day jobs. And what were your first impressions of him? Well, at the party on his birthday, I thought he was nuts because he was kind of... I actually thought he was on something. <laughs> and um, I don't know, but I liked him. And he used to come over and hang out with me. And at the time, I felt I was like in a crisis mode where I felt like, I just want to be alone. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And it was kind of this weird ongoing, he'd come over, I'd do something with him and have a great time, but then I'd, you know what I mean? Like each time I'd tell my roommate, like, I don't know, I don't feel like doing anything, I don't feel like hanging out. And then eventually um, I, I ended up going on this bike trip with a friend of mine. It's funny where like all you need is like one person and then you have like the end, like a big group. And I really didn't know very many people while I was in college. And then right as I graduated from my undergrad program, I, I met one or two people through the record store and then sort of met this entire huge group. And Linda was part of that. Um, I was just working like 15 or 20 hours a week. She would go sort of from one job to another. And um, she would go away and travel for a while and come back. So we both had a lot of time. And we would just kind of like sit around and hang out. Keith got to know Linda because she was a frequent flyer at Square Records, the neighborhood music store. At the time, Akron was her home base while she looked for other places to live. Keith had settled there after graduating from the local university, he's four years younger, and began recording music as the Trouble Books, inviting anyone and everyone that he knew to play along. Soon after Linda moved into the same art house as him, he convinced her to join. I feel like it started when Keith wanted to go on a tour and I was I was available I wasn't really working full-time or anything and Keith was like would you go with me you know I can teach you the songs on the road and for some weird reason I went with him which is really strange because I didn't even sing in the car like I I, I didn't even do that because I really felt like I had a terrible weird voice and everything and I was really self-conscious and then when he asked me, for some odd reason, I went. <laughs> we had a pretty disastrous U.S. like little tour. It was four of us in my station wagon. Um, and we showed up for one show in Burlington, Vermont. Like, nobody's there. We play, and the guy who booked it, he's like, oh, so where's your next show? And m our friend Mike was like, oh, it's in Philadelphia. You know, We're not sure if we should, you know, just drive through the night to get there, like hinting, like waiting for like, no, you, or you could stay with us. And he's, the guy just says, yeah, I'd do that. <laughs> so he drove all night and slept in our car at like a Dunkin' Donuts somewhere. It'd be super cool if you decided to stay. I don't have anything I have to do since yesterday. When I lowered all the storm. 
first show that we were going to play was in Rochester, and it was me and Keith and Mike. And I got really nervous, and I asked Keith if he would practice out in the car with me. I think we were at somebody's dorm or something. We sat out in the car, and it was February and freezing, and he just played like a little mini acoustic guitar and went over the songs with me. And I don't know. I think it was then that I sort of felt like, yeah, I think I could be with Keith for a long time. <laughs> Linda doesn't have much of a musical background. She started out playing drums, followed by bass, before finding a home on the keyboards in their early days. The first album, The United Colors of Trouble Books, saw release on the Luxembourgish label Own Records. Domestic distribution was, and has always been, handled by their personal imprint, Bark and Hiss. Shortly thereafter, most of the collaborators moved on to other projects, and Trouble Books became the duo it's been since. The music changed too, losing some of its ramshackle indie pop flair just as that sound went mainstream. And while their early music was hardly frenetic, their new sound was even more patient. records are us working the songs out as we record them and writing them as we record them. You know, Linda approaches it much more just feeling-wise and she just feels a part out, writes it down, records it, and then that's it. We don't have practice night twice a week ever. <laughs> it's just, um, because of that it's really like the record is the final product. And it seems to, it's strange to me that that seems to catch people off guard still. It's like you don't force a painter to like go up on stage and like paint for you. You've never seen anyone live painting before? Yeah, I, I have actually and it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> sounds pretentious to compare ourselves to a painter or something. Serious artist. Let's dwell on that comparison for a second, though, because it's actually a good one. Keith and Linda don't make songs so much as landscapes. Their second album, Gathered Tones, was the one that had caught my ear that night several weeks earlier, with scenes from a day in their life. Finally, sunlight and caffeine cut through the clouds. My morning slowly sputters and been interesting when um, we like I hear people talking about our stuff and they'll describe it as like really banal lyrics or really like they aren't saying anything which I think is sort of funny like the idea they, there's a lot of like work that goes into them and the idea is sort of like expressing sort of the simplicity of like you know you know gardening or, or you know doing the you know doing the dishes or whatever it is kind of like little snapshots yeah Stay under the blooming dogwood trees 
I love these snapshots because they capture some sense of inner peace that I lack. I have this desperate fear that I'm never going to stand out in the vast sea of information, which is probably a side effect of my chosen career as a journalist. My world feels totally foreign to the one in Gathered Tones. It's as though Keith Freund and Wendell Shavka have found some enlightenment that the life that I'm pursuing could never hope to match. But at the same time, I saw the chance to exploit something. In my eyes, making my way in journalism has always carried this uh, necessity of recognition, finding the story that no one else is going to find. Trouble books felt new in that they weren't trying so goddamn hard to be different. My first email approximated about as much professionalism as I could cram into it. Dear Keith and Linda, my name is Brendan, and I would like to produce a radio story on the two of you and your music. You don't posture or overreach by trying to tackle big questions. Your music is intimate, mundane, and powerful, as if the listener is sitting next to you at your dinner table. I would like to do a thorough profile about you both as a couple and as individuals. In the past, I am aware, you prefer to keep a low profile, so I would do my best not to disturb your privacy. My hope is to pull back the curtain, only briefly, on two artists whose world seems contentedly small. Sincerely, Brendan Maddox. The very next day, Keith sent me a one-sentence reply. Sounds cool to us. Before a friend and I set out for Ohio, they directed me to their cover artist and friend, Jacob Feige, a painter living outside Philadelphia. They've known him for about a decade. I think so. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I met Keith and Linda at, um, at the house where my wife was living at the time in Kent, Ohio. Jacob's paintings adorn the cover of every Trouble Books record, starting with Gathered Tones. Which painting was that? That is a painting, well, I'll describe it. It's a snowy mountain peak in Colorado um, with various kinds of geometric forms and blobs invading it, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and that was the, when Keith asked me to use that, that was really the, you know, the first time we worked together in any way. I'd actually known that he was a painter for a couple of years before I actually saw any of his work. <laughs> and then finally I got a chance to see it and it was like just totally the sort of thing I was into. And I thought fit what Linda and I were doing. There's a literal representation of space in my paintings. I paint landscapes for the most part, but then I deliberately try and pull away from that, I guess you could say, by layering these things that are pretty flat. Some of them sit in the space of the viewer, you could say. They're right on the surface of the painting, so they um, break down that illusion of space. Definitely the trouble books do that with the way they're creating different kinds of textures and difference, um, uh, difference in implied space. Uh, you know, you can do that with probably the most straightforward way is to do that with reverb, but they do it in a lot of complex ways that I don't even understand. Um, but then it goes back to a recognizable um, time signature, even back to pop. Uh, so it, in a way you could say that the representation in my work is like the pop in their work. It's, it's, a, it's an established genre and it's, um, it's something to push up against. And, and you play this game with how far 
you move away from it. To break that down, both Jacob and Trouble Books create a more lifelike, exciting new world through the juxtaposition of the familiar with the abstract. After Gathered Tones, Keith and Linda kept coming back to modern art as a recurring touchstone, recording a collaborative, self-titled record with the guitarist Mark McGuire. That album split the difference between where Keith and Linda came from and where they were headed, beginning with sweetly obtuse pop songs that are swallowed quickly in the squall of ambient electronics. The lyrics remain bright, beautiful, and modest. The next year, alone again, the duo released their third album, Concatenating Fields. That record stands at the other side of the divide, almost purely synthesized and influenced by minimalist painters, as well as the art school textbook, Interaction of Color. They insist that it's not super conceptual. I think we're both really visual, like we visualize the stuff we're working on, and we usually describe it to each other as such. You know, like, Linda will be working on a part, and I'll kind of give her an idea based on like colors almost of what I'm thinking it needs and she'll usually completely understand that somehow. It's Yeah, and it's hard to put into words like um, your question makes me think of like that trip that we took to shoot the Rothko exhibit. Oh, at Tate Modern? Yeah, it was at the Tate Modern, that's where it was. But um, he had an exhibition there that was just like one room and I felt really kind of overwhelmed emotionally and then I thought oh, I'm just you know that way or something and then when we were leaving Keith was all um, sort of a little teary-eyed when we left and we both kind of had the same reaction Keith worked at the Akron Art Museum, and um, I think specifically he started to get into 20th century abstract painting. Uh, he got into op art. Uh, in particular, there's a painter, his name is Julian Stanchak, took me a second there. <laughs> uh, he's originally from Eastern Europe. Um, makes these really um, meticulous geometric abstract paintings. Keith um, got really into those. Uh, and, and in a way, those have a rhythm to them that they're a lot like music. Yeah, Julian Stanchek is this, uh, he's actually lives outside of Cleveland. And I got to meet him a few times through working at the art museum and Linda's gone to some of his lectures and stuff. His house is like, 
when I went the first time, it was, it was just like this fantasy of like how I wanted life to be. You know, I guess like some people imagine themselves like as like this like famous New York person or like, you know, cool LA thing or whatever, but he's this guy living outside of Cleveland in this like split level house that is just like filled with art that him and his wife make with like cat doors cut into the door and they just seemed like content and happy and it was like, oh, this is paradise. <laughs> the irony of Keith's monologue was not lost on me, sitting in his brilliant modernist home on a secluded acre. Because while I have pictured myself as a famous New York person, Ira Glass, for instance, my experience of the trouble books included picturing myself with their life, reunited with my girlfriend, living in a quiet place, with cats and synthesizers, and a music project that made me feel content. We wrapped our first interview and had dinner, a record spinning in the background. Keith gossiped about the breakup of a friend's band. Linda talked about her new job as a rehab counselor. After Keith's parents picked up their daughter, my companion and I left them alone to prepare for their first live show since 2012. Huh? The venue, Musica, was packed. Tonight's show celebrated the 10th anniversary of the music store where Linda and Keith met, Square Records. Hello. Uh, we're going to play for 15 minutes. Um, so, if, if that's okay. We don't have 20 minutes. We have 15. And we, um, Dave, Dave told us we were only allowed to play for 15 minutes. Just kidding. He's a nice guy. He yelled at me when I told him it was going to be 10 minutes, actually. So, uh, so we're going to play. Thank you. The decision to sandwich Trouble Book's more delicate synthesizer music between two super loud and sloppy indie rock bands felt kind of weird, as though even amongst their friends in the outsider city of Akron, they were still just a little bit different. Before his set, Keith introduced me to their friends, Charlie and Katie. So, Charlie, when I was talking to Keith, um, setting up all the interviews and stuff, I asked like people who I could talk to, and he said that you would be interesting to talk to because you feel that they may not have gone as far as they could with the trouble books. <laughs> is that a... <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Um, uh, I'm going to guess that that is probably rooted in several times I've kind of suggested like, hey, why don't we print up a run of t-shirts for your tour? Or why don't you let me design some sort of, you know, not middle school HTML website for you to sell your records on um, and he just kind of has always maintained like yeah, no I just want to do it myself um, which he definitely has right exactly he's not a business fan but um, that being said I definitely like them more than most Akron bands I also <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you guys think sets them apart from other Akron bands? Mm. Oh. Yeah, think about that. They definitely take a different approach. I mean, they play. Tonight was the first show they played in over a year. They don't really particularly, particularly 
care about playing a ton of shows and trying to become famous. I think a lot of background bands try to kind of piggyback off the idea of, oh, the Black Keys are from here, like they're from they're from Akron, they just started out in a basement. We can be big like they can be, and Keith just, I mean, Keith and Linda definitely don't, they're not interested in that. They're not interested in something like that. Why do you guys think they aren't interested in that? I don't know. I think a lot of that is bullshit. <laughs> can, we, can we say that? I don't care. Sure, why not? <laughs> it's just, who cares about any of that stuff? No, it's not real life. No one cares. <laughs> you know, we don't like being on stage. Um, I don't really want to travel all that much and do that. If we sell, like, 500 records or 5,000, it doesn't really make any difference. Um, it, you're not going to get health insurance via, like, selling, you know, even 10,000 records. They hiccuped once or twice, but couldn't have cared less about whether or not anyone paid attention. Even on stage, Charlie pointed out, they focused on each other. Again, their friend and cover artist, Jacob Feige. You know, Keith has kind of a modesty and humility uh, and an even-keeled nature um, to him that I think is admirable. He also doesn't have, like, really high expectations for his art, but he still strives to make it better and more particular. Uh, he's invested in it without thinking like, I'm doing this because it's my ticket to some fame or ambition. And I think that's really hard to do. I think most artists in a variety of media, you have your sights set on some kind of credit for things, acknowledgement as one of your motivating uh, forces. And I don't think that really is one of Keith's primary motivating forces. They were everything that their music had indicated they would be. And until now, I'd felt satisfied with proving that thesis. But I was suddenly disappointed. A good story, I've been told over and over and over, hinges on characters changing over time through conflict. And yet here in Akron were these two people, without any sort of tension or anxiety, making the most sublime, hopeful music that I'd ever heard. Had they ever wanted to be anything more? Or was it wrong that I wanted them to be? I was lost in these thoughts, watching them play, when my companion tapped me on the shoulder. He whispered in my ear, I think we might be watching their last show. Thank you, that's all for us. Thanks so much to Dave and Juniper. Yes. House guest is up next. You've been listening to A Story About the Trouble Books, Part 1. We'll be back next week with Part 2. Our show was produced today by myself with help from many people over the last two years, and it was edited and approved by Kana Doles. Our website is investigatingregionalscenes.org, where you can find this and other stories about music. All songs in this episode were written by Keith and Linda, with the exception of Floating Through Summer, which was written by Keith, Linda, and Mark McGuire. You can find a list of those songs in order of appearance at our website, investigatingregionalscenes.org. 
If you haven't already, please follow us on your local podcast provider. Thank you to Keith and Linda, Charlie and Katie, and Jacob. And thank you to Michaela for her patience. I'm Brendan Maddox, back next week with the conclusion of this story about music. next week on Stories About Music. With the Trouble Books, did you ever have any sort of grand plans, like be famous, or has it always been? No. Why don't you explain? My fantasy for our band has always been that we would be able to sustain the interest of people enough so that we could sell out of as small of a pressing as a plant is willing to do for us of records. longer are you both planning on keeping up the trouble books? I don't know. I really don't. Has, um, it, has it ever felt like, oh, maybe we should stop now? Or Yeah, probably. Maybe we might just pull this off. Go get some, some night train.